Psalms, a large collection of independent pieces written over many centuries, serving as a prayer and a hymnal for over 3,000 years, both for ancient Israel and for the Church. Why are we, in the year 2021, still concerned, inspired, touched by these ancient manuscripts? Calvin called Psalms the anatomy of the soul. Why? Because they know us all, the real deal. They express our feelings, our emotions, our passions, our laments, our despair. They reflect our real life experience, and they always point us to God. And you know, in stark contrast to our outer world that had these mind-boggling changes, our inner landscape has not changed that much at all. The word psalm or psalter originally referred to stringed instruments like a lyre, a harp, or a lute, and then to songs sung with their accompaniment. The Psalms have also been called a miniature Bible for the Christian lady, always sung and recited with deep musical and poetic roots. Did you know that two-thirds of Old Testament quotes in the New Testament are from Psalms? Jesus lived by and recited from these psalms. These were his songs. King David, a noted singer and musician, penned many of them. He has been called Israel's Mozart, who transformed the Mosaic liturgy by giving it musical tunes. Psalm 84 is this rich and impassioned psalm. To this day, it's part of Jewish and Christian liturgies, and it has been said to music often. It's beginning, how lovely is your dwelling place, has been used often on synagogues or churches and is sung at dedication ceremonies. A superficial reading of Psalm 84 might look something like this. A devoted pilgrim in ancient Israel is longing to be in Zion, the city of God, to worship his God in the temple. The longing of a person's heart for God is typified here in the longing for the temple. For in the Old Testament, the temple was the symbol of the presence of God, going back all the way to the tabernacle in the wilderness. I don't want to pretend for one minute to comprehend what the temple in Jerusalem meant to Jews. My husband David and I were invited last night to join a Jewish friends for Shabbat, observing in fascination their Sabbath liturgy, read and sung in ancient Hebrew. I realized how little I understand of Jewish sentiment and of their deep-rooted traditions. But as we dig deeper in this psalm, there is so much more. There is the universal cry for their maker, expressed here in the context of ancient Jewish cultic life. It's the visceral cry of a baby for its mother. Throughout history, people have expressed this longing in their restless hearts, often unaware of what or who they are longing for. 
Charles Spurgeon said Psalm 84 was entitled to be called the pearl of Psalms. It expresses the deepest of our human longing, the longing for our true home, our true father. Or as Augustine of Hippo expressed it, our soul is restless until it finds rest in God. The gravitational center of life is God, Yahweh, the Lord. To him, all things are subject, governed by one hand. His fingerprints are everywhere. If we acknowledge it or not, if we are aware of it or not, if we submit to it or not, just as not believing in gravity doesn't cancel gravity. Psalm 84 is this beautiful poetic love song oozing with desperate longing, pining, fainting, crying out. Homesickness is written all over this song. In German, we call it Heimweh, a longing for home so strong that it aches, it hurts. Weh, the realization that not all is well. Even though we frantically stuff our gaping holes, something is still missing. It's as if my soul is living in a temporary place and longing for its true home. Have you experienced time, V? Probably most of us as kids when we were away from home or during this pandemic, longing for family we were separated from. But ultimately, on the deepest level, we don't long for a place, but for oneness with our Creator, our true Father, God Himself. Eternity does dwell in our hearts. I have just come back from visiting my family in Switzerland. I always marvel when I'm there in this seemingly perfect and perfectly beautiful Alpine nation that has largely been spared from major catastrophes. You would expect to find the happiest people there, yet Switzerland has one of the highest suicide rates in the world. Why? My own family has had its share of trouble. Depression, alcoholism, suicide. Why this seeming paradox? because it's not beautiful mountains, high standard of living, good jobs, wealth, status, security, not even delicious Swiss chocolate that satisfied a longing and a yearning in our hearts because true riches are not counted in Swiss francs. And that's why I chose this song because he points like an arrow through the confusion of today's bombardment with distractions and deceptions and enticement to the real point of life, the only place where this hunger and thirst deep down in our soul is met. No matter where you find yourself today as you listen to this sermon, maybe searching, sensing Heimweh, longing for meaning and trying desperately to fill or numb the void in your heart. Or maybe you're on a difficult stretch on your pilgrimage, battling illness, 
or financial fears or broken relationships or your nearing home. May this psalm redirect you to the real object of your deepest desire and focus your gaze once more on your Creator, your Redeemer, your God. The psalmist longed for the temple because that's where he met with God. How about our meeting places, physical or virtual? Are they more than offering social connections, intellectual stimulation, programs, activities? Are they places where people meet the living God? It is my prayer that you, that I, would leave our gathering today having met with the living God. What a beautiful love song to God we have before us. Let's dive into the heart of it. And may we catch this contagious passion of the ancient psalmist. Let's first look at the circumstances in which the psalm was written, what it meant to the author. And as we walk together through this psalm to ask ourselves how resetting our heart's compass toward Zion could transform our daily life. Because isn't the fundamental question of where we face our compass? This psalm was written by Korites. They were uh, descendants of Levites, a guild of temple singers that served uh, in the temple worship. There are several psalms that are attributed to the sons of Korah, one of which is, for example, Psalm 42, that vibrates with the same longing chords. As a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. The term gittith may have been a musical instrument, like a lyre or a tune from a certain region. The predominant emotion of this psalm is a yearning of a pilgrim to be in the temple in Jerusalem, the center of religious life of Jews, where the presence of God dwelt, the holy of holies. The psalmist begins his song with the language of love poetry. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. A more accurate translation would be how beloved or how well-loved is the tabernacle. The word tabernacle comes from the word to dwell, so it means a dwelling. God instructed, as you remember, a Moses at Mount Sinai to build a dwelling for him, and he placed his special presence in the Holy of Holies above the Ark of the Covenant. It says in Exodus 25, there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant, I will meet with you. Later, King David moved the tabernacle to Mount Zion, where Solomon built the first temple that superseded the tabernacle as the dwelling place of God. Thus, that place and that building were wholly set apart from all other places because of God's presence there. To be in Zion was to be close to God. The true beauty, though, was in what it represents. What the tabernacle stands for is the glory of God's living presence. 
As Christians, we don't need to travel to a special place to be near God. The New Testament reveals that now God makes his presence known in Jesus Christ. With the coming of the Messiah, something extraordinary and mind-boggling happened. John 1 tells us the Word became flesh and made his dwelling, his tabernacle among us. Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And suddenly we get it. All along, the tabernacle and its sacrifices foreshadowed the Messiah, who is the high priest and offered himself as the sacrifice. He is the fulfillment of that Old Testament system, which had only meaning because of its spiritual realities. And after Jesus ascended into heaven, God sent his Holy Spirit to dwell, to tabernacle in us. Now we as individuals and as his church are called the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And in Ephesians 2, we read, in Christ, you are being built together to become a dwelling, a tabernacle in which God lives by his spirit. The temple of God is no longer a towering structure in Jerusalem. His temple is the person of Jesus and, by extension, his church. That's unbelievable. And I got so excited the first time I grasped this profound connection in Scripture and the thought that the living God has always desired to dwell with us. That still flabbergasts me. The presence of God is not limited to a specific building or a specific country or a specific people group. There is no room for elitism or nationalism or racism in God's house. A distinctive feature of this psalm is the fourfold use of Yahweh Sabaoth, translated as Lord Almighty or Lord of hosts, or as the message puts it, the God of angel armies. This notable contraction and concentration of divine names in this psalm serves to emphasize that the temple had meaning only because of the presence of God there. The psalmist loved the house of God because he loved the God of the house. His heart and flesh cried out not for the altar, not for the candlestick, but for his God. There's a stunning story in 2 Kings 6 where Elijah and his his servant are surrounded by a foreign army. The servant cries out in fear, Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? Don't be afraid, Elisha answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 
And he prayed, open my servant's eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills filled with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Our God is never outnumbered, no matter how fierce the enemy. He is Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord Almighty, the God of angel armies. This worshipful praise flowed, of course, from the mouth of a dedicated servant of the temple who found great delight in temple life. In stark contrast, we find other examples, for example, in the book of Amos, of a less comedic crowd of Israelites who were saying instead, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales? Sounds eerily familiar in 2021, doesn't it? Some Bible verses really read as if they're straight out of Time magazine. Which camp are we in? Am I longing to be in communion with my maker? Or am I more like the guys in Amos who can't wait to get back to their more important business, selling grain, making profit? Verse 2 says, My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Against the, again, the intense language of desperate love, not for the temple's architectural values, but for God's living presence. In Scripture, we have many beautiful examples of intense and daring longing for intimacy with God. Think of the audacious woman who poured an expensive perfume on Jesus' feet, or of Mary who defied cultural norms to sit at the Master's feet. Or think of Paul who said in Philippians 3, I consider everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, for whose sake I've lost everything. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Or Asaph in Psalm 73 who said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Or David in Psalm, 70, in Psalm 27. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. How badly do you, do I, desire God? Psalm 3 talks about birds. Even the sparrow has found a home and to swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. When we love someone, we envy anyone who has access to the beloved. The psalmist is jealous of these tiny creatures because they built their nest close to the altar. Even for them, there is rest near God. 
These feathery temple singers filled the temple with their joyous songs. In God's house, there is space even for the birds. There is space for everyone. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Oh, how the, how the psalmist envied them. Verse 4, Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Here we encounter the first of three Beatitudes in this psalm. Blessed are those. Blessed or happy are those who dwell with you. When we are close to God, we can't help but praise him. In verse 5, there's another beatitude. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Or in a different version, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. What a fascinating phrase. This is so countercultural today. Our world tells us to look within ourselves, to follow our passion, to do you. Not so in Psalm 84. True joy, it tells us, is not having an internal compass that says, follow yourself but one that says, follow God. Which way do the highways of your heart run? Towards self-indulgent navel-gazing or towards pursuit of God and service of others? We are blessed when we run towards him. When we build neurological highways in our minds, deep grooves that lead to him. Verse 6, as they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. Along this pilgrimage to Zion, we inevitably walk through the valley of Baca. Baca means weeping. It speaks of tears and of drought and dryness. Pilgrims making their way through difficult terrain on their way to the temple. We all know of these desert times in our own lives. When we feel parched, running on empty, thirsty for real life and meaning. Have you been there? I have. Incredibly, the psalmist writes of making these parched lands a place of springs, pools of water, the symbol of life. The valley of Baca is into an oasis. As we look to God, we can turn valleys of tears into highways of blessings, dry valleys into flower gardens, growth in the midst of suffering. Water of tears turned into springs. I think of women like Joyce Meyer or Beth Moore, who turned their valley of years of sexual abuse into springs of life-giving ministries that bless millions around the world and help countless women to overcome their own stories of abuse with Christ. Faith dares to dig blessings out of hardships. God provides rain to refresh us and renew our faith 
He alone can turn our tragedies into triumphs if we let him. What is your valley of tears? Where are you hurting? Jesus knows where we are dry. He knows where we're at. Come to him. Dip deep. Marinate in his loving presence. He is right with you in your valley of Baca. Your illness, your loneliness, your brokenness, your addiction, your pain. Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. He told the woman at the well, he who drinks from my water will never thirst again. Through my studies of nutrition and herbalism, I was exposed to funky-sounding phrases like thanking the water in my glass, asking for forgiveness of the plant I harvest, hugging trees to connect with the universe, to find my inner goddess. It sounds cool, but completely misses the point. And ultimately, it dishonors the creator who made the water, who made the plant, the tree, me. Even good things can become traps and idols when created things replace the creator. Verse 7, they go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. As the pilgrims progress in their journey, they keep getting stronger because of the rich relationship with God as a never-ending supply of strength. Normally, when we go on a journey, we start strong and then we become tired and weak. But if we keep our eyes on God as we go through the hard times, we will gain strength. Faith grows with exercise. I love to watch godly seniors getting ever stronger in their walk with God as they age, radiating a passion for God, even though their physical bodies are slowly falling apart. 2 Corinthians says, We do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. The nearer the goal, the stronger the pull. The glorious destination gives us strength to keep going. God will not be rushed. Spiritual growth cannot be microwaved. The Christian life is a pilgrimage, one trusting step at the time. Verse 8, hear my prayer, listen to me, God of Jacob. The psalmist grounded his plea in the long history of God's faithfulness with his people. God blessed Jacob, Jacob, who someone called a crooked man through whom God draws straight lines. I love that. The same God will also bless his people now. He is the same faithful God throughout history. Verse 9, look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. 
This reference to our shield and the anointed one are understood as applying to Israel's King David, the extended arm of God. But it also sheds light on the Messiah, the ultimate anointed one. Because all scripture speaks of Christ. Jesus said in Luke 24, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Wherever we go in scripture, the main subject is Jesus. And then verse 10, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I would rather means literally in Hebrew, I have chosen. We have a choice. Deuteronomy 30 says, I have set before you life or death, blessings or curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. We make our agendas, don't we? And they reveal our true value system, what is really important to us. Where do you pitch your tent? What is important to you? Not what you say is important to you, but what your story, your agenda, your lifestyle, your checkbook, your social media account tells. God's worst is better than the devil's best, said Spurgeon. Loss is a great microscope to reveal what is truly important and valuable to us. Could COVID be a chance for us to reshuffle our priorities? What needs to move up on your list? And what constitutes elsewhere and needs to be scrapped? More than anything, the psalmist seems to proclaim, we need God. In verse 11, he says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk, whose walk is blameless. This is the only place in all of Scripture where God is called sun. His face shines on us and gives us light and joy energy and warmth, the sun who conquers the darkness. He's also called our shield, our defender, our protector. The battle belongs to the Lord. No good thing will he withhold. This promise is appropriate under the Old Testament covenant, where God promised direct blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Under the new covenant, though, the believer receives God's good things on the basis of Jesus' goodness, completely undeserved, amazing grace. In Romans 8, we read, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Verse 12, Lord Almighty, blessed 
is the one who trusts in you. Even though at this time, we only see glimpses like through a veil, we can delight in God already with trust and faith. The psalmist refers to three blessings in the psalm. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, in verse 4. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in verse 5. Blessed is the one who trusts in you, in verse 12. He reminds us that the good life is not about having everything you want. It's about having God. In fact, sometimes God disappoints our expectations to meet a deeper need. This primary spiritual meaning of blessed or happy is only intensified after the coming of Jesus. Of the New Testament's 112 references to being blessed, to being happy, guess how many focus on material things? Zero. Being truly blessed runs so much deeper than pretty pictures of the perfect life plastered on our social media. So where do you live? Where does your heart abide? Where do you go with your deeper wounds, those nobody sees, your disappointments? What difference does it make in your daily life knowing God? How does it influence your behavior, your thoughts, your actions? Let's get really practical here. Because I know I'm loved, I'm forgiven, I'm the daughter of the King, a child of God, because of that, I can bring my hurts to Him. I don't have to hurt back. I don't have to perpetuate the wounds and patterns of generations. I can leave the pit and be set free. I can forgive the one who wounded me. I can step out of self-indulgence and care for others. I can be kind to the rude. I can share instead of hoard. I can welcome the stranger. I can resist the insane rat race and take Sabbath rest. I can follow where he leads, trusting him. Faith is not an escape from the world. Opium for the masses, as Marx put it. No, it is actually the ultimate freedom. Psychology tells us that we become like the people we hang out most of the time. The more closely I walk with Jesus, the more consciously I walk with him through my day, the more I feed on his word, the more I will take on his character. In the tough times of my life, I have found only one anchor that holds, only one hand that never lets go, only one rock that will never be shaken, only one person who will love me forever. And if you have not met this Jesus yet, welcome him in. 
He invites you into his family, into his home, into his heart. I pray that you also may find your deepest longings satisfied in Christ. Standing side by side with my sister, who had recently received Christ, in the tiny chapel high up in the Austrian Alps, where my mother comes from, was a profound experience. As kids, we used to stare up at this enormous portrait of Jesus painted on the chapel wall. Now, 50 years later, we both, my sister and I, have him in our hearts. Let Psalm 84 wash over you. Pray it. Sing it. Let it give voice to your longing of more of Jesus. Better is one day in his loving arms than a thousand elsewhere because his name is above every other name. Amen. Mm -hmm.